blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Good morning. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We are beginning today, uh, week number one, through a 10-week series through the Ten Commandments. We're walking through this uh, rather slow. We're going to take 10 weeks and only get through 17 verses. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, we see the giving of the law of the Ten Commandments. And here is my hope. My hope is over the next 10 weeks, we would, one, learn more about God. We learn more about who God is because I believe when we are given the Ten Commandments, we're not just simply given a, a list of ten rules to live by while that's what they are in many ways. We're actually given a glimpse into the very heart and character of who God is, that God comes before his people as Israel and he announces to them in these ten words, which is that word that we translate as commandment, could be also just translated as word in Hebrew. He gives these ten words, and I think he puts on display his very character and who he is. And so what we want to see is that we, over the next ten weeks, want to learn more about God, and we also want to delight in his law. My hope is that as we read through and learn more about these things, that we would delight in the law of God. That we wouldn't just look at them as something like, oh, I have to not kill people, right, in the sixth commandment. But rather, we would look and say, my God is the God who loves life and protects life, and I want to delight in that reality and in that truth. That is our goal over the next 10 weeks. Before we do that, We've got to answer a question. I think a question that comes up with the Old Testament in general and the question that comes up with the Ten Commandments is this, is do we even need them today? Or I've heard it phrased like, are we even bound by these commands today? Do these even apply to us? I mean, Josh, isn't this just the Old Testament and Jesus came in the New Testament and the New Covenant and he's abolished the Old Covenant and we, we just don't need these anymore and I would say in some sense, yeah, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is abolished and is renewed in Christ. But ultimately what we see, if we're seeing the very heart and character of God, we know that that is unchangeable. That God tells us that he, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we're given a picture of the heart of God, that God is still the same. And we want to obey and love the things that God loves. And so what we typically see what we, how the Old Testament kind of gets understood, and in particular the law, and I have a slide up here, uh, if you look at that, 
is that the law is, is broken often into three categories. Those three categories are the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. That this is what we often see, uh, or this is how theologians have kind of broken down the Old Testament for us. That the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament are things like animal sacrifice, right? We have not yet had to ask the community center like, hey, I know you don't want us to bring food and drink into the gym. How do you feel about a goat? Because Josh needs to kill it in front of everybody, right? We don't have to do that. Now, we haven't done that. Why? Because that's kind of the easiest one to see. That law has been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was that sacrifice. He, every scapegoat before him was just a foreshadowing of what he would be. Every atonement lamb sacrificed before him was just a, foresha- a foreshadowing of, of that. Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. He fulfilled that. We see things like the temple. That The temple is no longer a physical place, but it's me and you, and he lives within us because Jesus was the temple and he died and rebuilt it in three days like we talked about when we studied the book of Mark. That these are these ceremonial laws that were fulfilled in Jesus. We also have civil laws in the Old Testament. Laws because they were to be a nation, an actual government, a theocracy. And so they were given these laws from really uh, things like uh, what to do if your ox gores somebody. Right? Are you liable for that? That's the kind of thing that you need to decide when you're the government to even really small things like what to do with your excrement when you got to go to the bathroom and you don't have plumbing. These are things that I think we see that are, that are really good uh, principles. If we can principalize them and bring them into uh, a modern context, that's wonderful. But we also have to understand that they're limited because we don't live in a theocracy. We live in a, in a republic, a democratic republic. And it's just very different. And we don't have the ability to obey those in the same way. And so while the Old Testament will tell you things like put a parapet on your roof because people would be out on the roofs because your roof was flat and you wanted to put something on there so people didn't, you know, like fall off the roof, it's still a good idea to have Kindle come underneath my basement stairs and screw boards in so children can't fall through those, right? And so while it's maybe not the law and we're not bound by it, I think we can see and agree that there's some wisdom in God's even civil laws that he gives. That, that while we're certainly not bound and, and our righteousness before God isn't whether or not your stairs are safe, I would tell you, like, you should probably make your stairs safe, right? We can see those kind of things. And then finally, what we see, though, in the Old Testament— is the moral law. God's moral law, like the Ten Commandments, I would say they fall under this category. These commands are often reiterated in the New Testament, meaning they're taught again and we see them again in the New Testament. And they are a direct reflection of the very character and nature of God. These laws are unchangeable because God is unchangeable. The theological term for that, if you want to write down and impress your friends next time you talk to them, is he's immutable. The word immutable means he does not change or things do not change. God is immutable in his character. And so the moral law of God does not change because God does not change. We have helpful passages like Romans 13, 8 through 10 that tell us this. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So what we have in the New Testament is this law of love. 
that we are to love God. As Jesus is asked, what are the most important commands or the heaviest commands? He quotes and he says, it is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He quotes from Deuteronomy when he does that. And then he adds to it and quotes from Leviticus and says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what I, would, what I want to argue over the next 10 weeks is really the 10 commandments are summed up in those two. The first four commandments tell us how we are to love God, that there are no other gods before him, that we are not to make false images and bow down to them. We should not take his name in vain. We are to set aside a day and keep it holy to worship God. And we'll talk about what that looks like in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. And there is some things that are uh, continuous, and there are some things that are discontinuous in that. But ultimately, it's about loving God. Love God. And that second command is love your neighbor. You love your neighbor when you don't murder, when you don't uh, commit adultery, when you do not steal, when you do not tell lies, and when you do not covet, you love your neighbor. So ultimately, the Ten Commandments, I would say, are summed up in the two great commandments that Jesus gave us. So are the Ten Commandments still relevant today? Yeah, they are. And if that doesn't convince you what I've said, I just want to say this. Aren't they just wonderful I mean, just think about a world for a second. Think what would happen if we lived in a world where these commandments were obeyed. If you lived in a world where there was only one God and everyone saw that and they didn't let other things creep in and, and take God's place in their life, even in the functionality of life, where people didn't make false images or see things and bow down and worship to false things, where people cared about their words and what they said and they would not say anything in the name of God that was not actually truly in God's name, where we had a day of rest every week where you can get Sabbath rest and even throughout the week that you would find rest in your Savior Jesus. A world where people honored their parents and listened to mom and dad. Parents in the room, can I get an amen? Oh, what a world, right? Parents of adult children, can you get an amen? If they would just listen to what I'm telling them to do, we all think we know better than our parents. A world where there was no murder, a world where people did not cheat on their spouse, a world where we did not steal, a world of no theft where you could leave your doors unlocked and your car undone and and know that no one's going to come and take it, no matter what neighborhood you're in, a world where people told the truth. They did not slander or gossip about other people. A world where even in our hearts, we did not want what other people had. We did not covet. Wouldn't that be a beautiful and wonderful world to live in? So do I think the Ten Commandments have something to teach us? Yes. Because as we read Psalm 119 over the next ten weeks, it is the longest chapter in all of the Bible, and it is about the Bible. You read through Psalm 119. We only read 16 verses this Sunday. We have nine more Sundays, and we'll get through the entirety of the psalm in the course of that time. But you will see over and over again as the psalmist crying out and saying, Oh, your word, your statutes, your precepts, your commands, your law is my delight. It's better than riches and honey and and all these things all throughout it. And my hope, as we look at the law of God and the very heart and character of God, is that we would come to the end of ten weeks. And at that time we would delight in the law of God, that you would be a person who would read Psalm 119 as you worked your way through its hundreds, its hundreds some verses, I think it's 170 some odd verses. You would read it and your heart would resonate and you would say, 
oh, I know what the psalmist is feeling. I feel that. Oh, aren't his laws good? Aren't they wonderful? Oh, I want to store them up in my heart so that I might not sin against him. And that we would see that and we would delight in the law of God because we would see that they're a reflection of his character. And the law is good because God is good. God is inherently in his very nature and his very core good. So when he displays himself through ten words, what we see is goodness ten times over. That you would see that and believe it. So that's our hope for the series. Now to get us to Exodus chapter 20, we've got to do a bit of backtracking. So just a real quick overview of the book of Exodus. In the opening chapters of Exodus, what we see is God's people are enslaved. They're enslaved to the Egyptians and that they are being terribly treated and they begin to cry out to their God and they ask God for deliverance from slavery and God hears their cries. And as he hears their cries, he raises up a man named Moses. And Moses is called to God. He gets to go before a burning bush. God tells him his name, that his name is I Am, which is what we'll see later in our text today, that he is Yahweh. He is the God. It just means he is being. He is existence. He is the core and foundation of all reality and all goodness and all that he is. That's who he is, and that's who Moses is, is, stands face to face with. He has to take his shoes off. He talks to this burning bush where God talks to him, and he tells him to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, set my people free. You have to let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way I'm giving up all that free labor. And so God then goes through a, a period of time where he sends 10 plagues. Pharaoh will kind of go back and forth where he'll decide to let the people go, and they'll change his mind. And he gets to that 10th plague, and finally, Pharaoh agrees to let the people go, and they, they gather all their things together. And in fact, God even moves in such a way that the Egyptians are just blessing them with all this wealth and, and material so they might go. And all of these people, an entire nation worth of people, leave. And that is the Exodus, where we get the name of the book. They exit Egypt. And they leave Egypt, and Pharaoh again, one last time, changes his mind, and he grabs his army, and they begin to pursue the people of Israel. And so God splits the Red Sea, and the people of Israel walk through the Red Sea, and and they walk through dry land, and as they make it through the other side, Pharaoh's army is coming down on them, and God is in between them in a cloud of fire and smoke, and he is put himself between the danger and his people. And as he's done that, he's drawn Pharaoh's army and as the pursuit of their own desires and their own wickedness into this sea. And then the sea comes crashing down on them so that the people of God would know that God is going to care for them and that he will defeat their enemies. And he defeats an entire army single-handedly. And they spend time in the wilderness. They get hungry and Bread falls from heaven and they're fed. They get thirsty and God brings water from a rock. They get disorganized and chaotic and God brings them leaders. And then we make our way to Exodus chapter 19 where God begins to tell Moses that he is going to make a covenant with his people. He is going to show himself to his people. He's going to reveal himself and they are going to make a covenant. And this is what he says in Exodus 19 
verses 3 through 6. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." So Moses goes to the people of Israel, and there's more instruction given to him. And he speaks to the people of Israel. And they are told that they can keep this covenant between God and these commands, that they will be God's people. There's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. And this is such a serious and somber reality that before God visits these people, he literally has them prepare the mountain. Moses has to set limits because if they get too close to this mountain, they'll die. Because the holiness of God is going to come down to this mountain and he's going to rest on this mountain of Mount Sinai where he's going to be delivered this covenant. And if they get too close, they're going to die. And all the people have to go and they have to concentrate themselves. They have to wash their bodies and their garments. They have to abstain from sex. And it takes them three days to do this. And on the third day, God says, I'll, I'll have a trumpet be blown. When the trumpet is blown, the people of Israel are to gather around the mountain. But don't get too close. Make sure you stay within those limits. Even on that third day, Moses goes up, talks to God, and God says, hey, make sure they don't forget about that limit thing. Like, I'm serious. They crossed that line. They're going to die. Don't do that. And God comes, and he speaks to his people. And when he shows up, Thunder crashes and lightning strikes and the mountain is covered in smoke. And that's where we get in Exodus chapter 20. And it says this, And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is what sets the scene for the Ten Commandments. This amazing and awesome thing that God does. We have to bring ourselves into this so we see just how serious this is. These commands are spoken directly by the voice of God. God at this point has been speaking through Moses, through an intermediary, through a mediator. Moses is able to meet with God, but But for this particular moment, and even after this, most of the time, God is going to speak to the people through somebody else. But in this moment, for these ten words, he's going to speak to the people of Israel. He's going to speak from the mountain. And he says, God spoke all these words saying. Because what we want to see is that in the Ten Commandments, that they are declared by a divine voice. They're directly from God. And with all the theater that comes around it so that these people would understand just who they're talking to, God says these things and he gives us the first word, the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. That's our goal to see this morning is that we are to have no other gods before the one true God. And we want to see that this is declared by God's divine voice. This reality is not something that was discovered. It was not something that was invented or crafted. This truth 
that there is one God, and we are to have no gods before him, that truth is a revealed truth. Nobody came up with that on their own. God made it known. It is a fact that is true no matter what any invention of the mind we give or don't give. And in this preamble to you shall have no other gods before me in these ten and the nine commands that follow that first one, what I want us to look is it says, I am the Lord your God. The ten commands are rooted in the fact that there is one God and he has declared himself to be God and he is saying, I am good. These commands are a reflection of me and my character. What I'm trying to say is this, is if you remove God from this equation as God, the underpinnings for these commandments do not hold together. You don't have good reason to say, don't kill people. Unless you can say, don't kill people because God has declared we should not kill one another. No matter what, that's the command. You shall not kill. They're rooted in his oneness and the fact that he is real and the fact of his character. And that is simply what he is telling us. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the basis of all reality. I am being. And I am your God. And I am making myself known to you. Just to provide a little contrast for us, and try to help you see what we're saying. Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, this is probably a really familiar uh, thing to anybody who's ever taken any kind of civics course. In the Declaration of Independence, he says this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable, which means unchangeable, rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, what we we see in the man of Thomas Jefferson is is a bit of a dichotomy. He writes something like this, but his life doesn't really reflect it. But I want to talk about what he says first is we hold these truths to be self-evident. I'm arguing that the truths of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, are not just self-evident, but they're instead declared by God. They're not self-evident as if we see them and they're obvious and we know to obey them, but rather they are revealed to us. And we need that revelation to, to, to bear them out and see them be true. Jefferson would say, these things are obvious and they're self-evident. Right? Who doesn't think that everybody is created equal? If we went and, and took a straw poll of the west side of Columbus, are people created equal? I bet it would come back pretty unanimously. Yeah, all people are created equal. Right? And in that sense, it's self-evident. We would say that. I would say that. Jefferson would say that. In that way, that's self-evident. In the same way, if we said, hey, west side of Columbus, should you kill people in cold-blooded murder? I'm willing to bet the survey would come back and say, no, don't do that. That's a self-evident kind of thing. Don't just randomly kill people. We all can agree on that. We would agree on that. But if the Christian was asked why, 
Why are all people created equal? The Christian wouldn't just say, well, it's just self-evident. The Christian would say, we are created equal because all people are made in the image of God. All people are made with dignity and value because God himself has dignity and value. And we're made in his image, which is different than just saying, well, isn't it just kind of obvious and we can just declare that it's self-evident? We're told, why should we not kill someone? The Christian would say, because life is meaningful and it's valuable and we need it. Let me prove my point. In the life of Thomas Jefferson, before the 1780s and roughly around that, and actually in the first drafts of the Declaration of Independence, he writes about the evils of slavery. And he writes openly that all men are created equal. But that draft doesn't make it. In those early days, Jefferson writes things like slavery is, is, uh, is, is morally wrong. He, he writes these things. It's a disdain on our society. And all this, yet when Thomas Jefferson died, over the course of his lifetime, he had owned over 600 people. At any given time, he had 100 people on his estate, which he named Monticello. Something happened in the 1780s and the 1790s where all of a sudden he became vaguely and mysteriously silent about the issue of slavery. Thomas Jefferson began to run for public office in a southern state. Jefferson's writing of the Declaration of Independence was so convincing that the state of Massachusetts, when they read it, they actually made slavery illegal. But six southern states, when they wrote their constitution and took from the declaration, they wrote the words, all free men are created equal. And they changed it. See, what you have in Thomas Jefferson is this man who tells you on one sense, this is wrong, but he bends and he breaks and his morality is elastic. His morality moves Because Jefferson is allowing something else to be his God. God is not his God. So whether it was his desire for political office and knowing I can't make all of these people in Virginia mad at me who vote, he became silent on the issue of slavery. Thomas Jefferson had an appetite, a very fine appetite. When he died, he was in massive amounts of debt. He loved fine wines, and he loved throwing parties. And if you have 100 people who work for free, it makes it a lot easier to spend a lot of money on fine wine. He actually had a dumbwaiter installed in his house that was hidden so that he could put empty wine bottles in it, close the door, it would then go travel to the bottom, uh, the wine cellar. A slave's job was to sit there, take the empty bottle, put another really expensive bottle up, whoop, and his guests would think it was like magic. Where did the bottle appear from? He had similar kinds of things with cupboards that would happen with, that would, hot meals would just appear because while Jefferson owned slaves, he built his mansion to hide them because he believed that only the beautiful parts of your estate should be visible to the eye, but the parts that are unbeautiful we should hide. He's a dichotomy. 
he wrote, and he, and he said this thing was wrong, something that I think if you went to the west side of Columbus and you polled the audience and said, hey, is it okay to own people based off their ethnicity? You would have an overwhelming no. And yet, it happened. And yet, in the civil rights movements, and even you have denominations like ours who exist. We talk about this in our members' class. We don't try to hide it. It exists because Southern Baptists believed that it was okay for missionaries to own slaves. In the 60s and 70s, you had prominent white evangelical pastors saying things like, it's okay for, or saying things like, bluebirds mate with bluebirds and redbirds mate with redbirds. Therefore, marriages should only be between whites and whites and blacks and blacks. Why did that happen? Was it because they read the Bible and the Bible's oppressive? Or was it because they didn't read it close enough? Was it because for all of us, things sneak in, and the first command of you shall have no other gods before me, other pieces of our life sneak in, and political clout, or the desire to not make people upset, or the desire to make things easy, or just to get along We justify immorality because our morality becomes elastic. It becomes moldable and bendable because at the end of the day, we have allowed something else to take the front seat in our life because we can't obey the rest of the Ten Commandments if we don't obey the first one. If anything else becomes your God, you are doomed to not be able to obey the other nine. So we justify things like the equality of people We say terrible and horrible things all throughout history in our lives because God, at least functionally and at least in that aspect, was not reigning and ruling over that situation. Men who were called to be men of courage, to say what was right, even when it was unpopular, didn't. Because they had another agenda. Something had snuck in. The beauty of the Ten Commandments is that they're based on the immutable or unchangeable character of God, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And our morality is not elastic. Our morality is firm and unchanging if it's based off the firm and unchanging nature and goodness of God. I share these things because I hope that your jaw is dropping. I hope you think, how could pastors say such a thing? Because now I get to say, you're just like them. And so am I. There are things in your life that you justify and you say they're okay, even though they're against the law of God, because you've allowed something to sneak in and become your functional God. God says, I am the Lord, your God You shall have no other gods before me. I am to rule and reign in your life with complete allegiance. No exception. But the reality is, is even Christian pastors have failed this, and even deists like Thomas Jefferson failed in this way. And that we don't maintain our own morality and we live inconsistently and we fail. And if we go through the Ten Commandments, you've all failed them and I have failed them. 
none of us would live, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the truth of the Ten Commandments. The Old Covenant could not be kept because nobody can live it out. So Jesus came and he fulfilled it. What brings us to the second thing is that the Ten Commandments, that there will be no other God before us, it is also declared by his deliverance. See, there's hope for sinners like me and you and people who failed in the past because God is a delivering God. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He reminds them of who he is and he reminds them of his past faithfulness, the things that have happened uh, from Egypt until now, that he is the God who delivered them. He's the God who heard their cries and delivered them out of slavery. He's the God who provided bread when they were hungry and water when they were thirsty. He protected them from the evil army that was coming down and bearing down on them and in one fell swoop defeated them alone because he is God. He is the Lord our God and he is the delivering God and he delivers us still today. See, that's the truth that we get to see. And if we keep tracing, tracing it back and they were remembering what it took to be delivered from Egypt, they would have remembered those Ten Commandments. You see, God had delivered them out of a polytheistic or a culture that worshipped many gods and he was bringing them into another place, the land of Cana, that also worshipped many gods and they were to declare that there is but one God and he is telling those people, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord. I am the deliverer. And he's trying to tell them, remember Egypt. And remember how I defeated their gods one after the other. Because you see, in the ten plagues, you see a direct correlation to various Egyptian deities. In the first plague, where Moses turns the Nile into blood, the god Osiris, was con- it was considered that the Nile was his bloodstream. That it was like his veins. And God was showing them, watch Osiris bleed out. I am the Lord your God. There will be no other gods before me. Osiris will not stand up to me. The god Hecate was a female goddess of childbirth. She had a frog for a head. She was the god of life. God sent thousands of frogs to Egypt and let them die in a horrible odor went throughout all the land and they would smell and he would say your God of life is dead by the thousands. There shall be no other gods before me. We see things like Geb is the God of the dust and the uh, gnats come up from the dust. We see livestock die the Egyptian bodies be uh, overwhelmed by boils, weather as hail comes through, crops are destroyed. All of these things having various deities that go along with them and Yahweh God is showing, I have power. I have power over the body and I heal. I have power over livestock. I have power over the grain of the field. I feed you. I clothe you. I bring you water when you need it. I am the God who's in control. And even Ra, the, the, the God of their gods, the kind of main guy was the sun God. And in the ninth plague, God said, watch this. Ra will be darkened for three days. 
your son God has nothing on me. And it was thought that Pharaoh himself embodied Ra. And God said, no more light, no more sun for three dark days. To drive it home, God took the firstborn in Egypt and saved the Israelites through the shedding of blood of a lamb as they put that blood on their doorpost and he passed over them in mercy, but his judgment rained down on Egyptians. God showed that he is the God of their entire pantheon, that none of their gods could step up to him because he controlled life and death. With each plague, he gave a precursor to Exodus 20 that now he has gathered his people at, the, at his feet, at the feet of this mountain, and, and in thunder and in lightning and smoke surrounding it, he is telling them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and I am telling you, you shall have no other gods before me. That is his declaration. In his deliverance, he puts on display his power over every false God and deity. But here's the good news for sinners like me and you. He delivered them out of the house of slavery, and he's still delivering us now. He delivers us from the slavery of sin. As we are sinners before a holy God and enslaved to sin, and we can't obey even when we try, even when we want to, we just can't get it right. God says, I'm delivering you out of this. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, he says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You are no longer in the house of slavery or that domain of darkness. Instead, you have been delivered if you have given your life to Christ. You are delivered from all of that. And he is saying in that deliverance, I'm the God who delivers and I will transfer you out of the domain of darkness and transfer you into the kingdom of light. And that's what he is saying to us today. The same God who is unchangeable met his people on the side of a mountain and spoke directly to them as if he had spoken to you today. And he spoke to them up until that point and afterwards through the prophets. But Hebrews tells us, but he speaks now through his son, the exact imprint of his nature. He came down when we could not go up to him. And he continues to not only appear and to speak in his divine voice, but he continues to deliver. He delivers us from our sin. The same God that displayed power over the false gods of Egypt and his power displays over the false gods of your life today. He will slay them before you. You will have no other gods before him. And that is so incredibly good because everything pales in comparison to his glory and greatness. The children of Israel are going to fail again. And they're going to need to walk for 40 more years through the wilderness. And so before they go into the, the uh, promised land after that 40 years, Moses is going to recite these again, the Ten Commandments. And when they do that, the people of Israel cry out in the book of Deuteronomy, and they say, oh, and, and Moses says, and what you said after God did this, what your forefathers said 40 years ago, after God did this, they said, oh, for now we have seen your glory, and your greatness. 
It's my prayer for us as we walk through the Ten Commandments that we will look at them and we would see his glory and his greatness. Might it be true in our lives that we will have no other gods before the God of the Bible, before Yahweh? And when you do, because you will, you can rest assured, Christian, he is powerful to deliver. That might mean the crushing of idols in your life. But he'll do it because he loves you. And he's a jealous God. And he is determined that you will have no other gods before him. Nothing is as good as he is. He is the foundation of all that is good. He is unchangeable in character. And because of that unchangeable reality, it guarantees that if you put your trust in him, you will not be disappointed. I don't know what has become your functional God in your life that allows you to justify disregarding life or allows you to justify unfaithfulness or lust in your heart to justify anger and, and murder in your heart. It, we allow it to justify uh, that little bit of slander or gossip that we say, oh, it's okay because you know, he or she said that about me. And we're allowing these little functional false gods to rule the day. They will all disappoint you, whatever that God is. If your spouse functions as a God, they will definitely disappoint you. If your kids function as an idol, they will disappoint you. Your stuff and your possessions... None of them can come before God. But here's the beautiful and wonderful news. Nothing is as good as the Lord God, the God of Israel. Nothing is as good. No one is as kind. No one is as long-suffering. No one is as patient. No one is as loving or compassionate. When God declares, I am the Lord your God, you will have no other gods before me, I hope you hear it as really, really good news. Because he doesn't just declare it in some kind of dic dictator kind of way. He, 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 he declares it as the God who loves you. I pray you hear first. I pray you hear this first command in all of its wonderful goodness and glory that you would learn to delight in the law of God. It is good news. So hear, O oh church, hear, O oh Redemption Hill. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Hear the first word. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. I pray that you would help us, help us see the truth. That our morality must be rooted in you and you alone or we are doomed to repeat horrible mistakes. That we'll allow things to be justified in our lives. We won't obey your holy and perfect law. We'll see people as not being valuable or meaningful because 
God, ultimately something else will take that number one position in our hearts. And that will trickle down and it will shape our morality and our morality will become elastic. It will stretch and bend as the culture demands or stretch and bend as, as we demand or need it for our own advantages in our lives. But God, change us. Help us see that you are the one true God, that your law never changes. And if we run and we seek you, We can be a firm foundation even in the difficulties of a world that is against us and not for us. Even when it seems like it will be personally uh, a disadvantage to obey the law. God, help us to obey because we trust you and we're willing to take on the disadvantage. And God, help us see that when we fail, because we will, that you are a delivering God. You deliver us out of the dominion of darkness. You transfer us into a kingdom of light, the kingdom of your son, where we're changed forever and saved by grace alone, through faith alone. You are the deliverer, Lord Jesus. You died that we might live because the law needed to be fulfilled, and it was fulfilled in Jesus and his death life, death, and resurrection. So God, change us and make us more and more like you. We ask this in your name. Amen.